Hi, this is Father Dominic Legg, director of the Thomistic Institute. Thanks for tuning in to today's lecture. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for college students, perhaps at one of our campus chapters or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. Students today are hungry for the truth, and you know how important it is for them to find it. If this podcast has impacted you, that's because someone gave a donation to make these talks possible. So I'm wondering, would you do the same for someone else this December? Even a gift of $10 or $20 has a big impact. Your gift will bring the truth to college students and to many others in 2023 if you give before December 31st. And you can make a tax-deductible donation at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. That's www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Thank you for your generosity. And may God bless you this Advent and Christmas season. My talk today is on the issue of justification. It's about the problem of justification. Uh, As Colton Shepard reminded me uh, when he extended this invitation to me, um, has he been haranguing you all about justification for the last... Two years, I've only had two hours of this now. I can only imagine what it's been like for you guys over the last couple of years. Uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't come and pick on my host as soon as I get here. Colton's been very gracious. Those of you, he's been great. Anyway, um, but as he reminded me uh, in his invitation, um, uh, John Calvin once referred to justification as the hinge on which religion terms, right? It does seem to me that it's a very, not not only a very central, but in some ways the central question, the central issue of the Christian faith. In what I do today, I'm going to try to approach that question by addressing some of the similarities, but also and especially some of the differences uh, between the views of medieval Catholics and the views of the great reformers, Luther and Calvin. And I'm going to spotlight especially Thomas Aquinas as a representative medieval Catholic and Luther and Calvin as the great reformers. Um, My hope in this talk is to offer some history that may or may not be known to all of you uh, and to foster a touch of interfaith or at least intra-Christian but still interfaith dialogue and uh, debate. Now, before coming to the question itself and trying to lay out what I understand the issue to be, I want to offer a few words about why I think this issue is so important, why I think this was a, why I think it was a worthwhile subject to propose for a lecture like this. Um, as my closest friend uh, never tires of telling me, um, the Reformation, at least the Reformation in its German and Swiss forms, was about theology, right? Uh, The 95 theses that Luther famously nailed up on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral, I mean, there's some debate whether that actually happened, but at least the the, the famous story, right, um, are famous for denouncing the sale of indulgences. Luther does indeed denounce that, but he was not the only one who denounced that, and he does not denounce it primarily on the grounds of greed or avarice, which every Catholic of that day would have complained about, or many of them at least, um, but rather on the grounds that it reflected a basic theological 
error, right? Above all, the problem with indulgences is that they carried with them the belief that salvation could be attained through works, that sins could be forgiven by works. Um, and uh, in other words, right, so for Luther, the particular sins of greed and corruption were of less importance than this basic theological confusion. And to understand that and to misunderstand God in that fashion was a graver mistake than any simple venial sin could possibly be, right? Um, this question is still somehow the question that's at the heart of our faith, right? Um, because at heart, it's the question of what the relationship is between the individual human being and Jesus Christ, right? In what way Christ provides salvation for human beings. The different answers to the question of justification, right? The Protestant, the Catholic justification, and the, the characteristically Protestant and characteristically Catholic answer have had important consequences that still last today, right? Um, and disagreements over the status of the sacraments and whether there is such a thing as purgatory turn on these fundamental questions about justification. Um, and so it seemed to me that it was appropriate to try to approach this question in the biggest and broadest way. Um, and what I say, I'm going to focus above all on large scale issues. We can get a little more into the nitty gritty as we go, but what I would like to do is just present first the reformers' view of justification, focusing especially on that space in which Calvin and Luther agree, and then show Thomas's position both insofar as I think, and Colton has warned me this may be a little uh, provocative, insofar as I think it's rather close to the Luther and Calvin position in some important ways, but also I hope to underline and to state what I take to be the most important and most fundamental differences. Um, and with that itinerary in mind, I'm now going to proceed to lay out the fundaments, the basics of the question of justice. Justification, right? Um, uh, so I've been using this term, this is section, if you're following along in your outline, we're now in part one. You don't have to follow along in the outline, it's fine. But, but if you are, we're in part one, right? So before we come to the big questions, I think it's important to spend some time just defining terms by way of introduction and explaining what this notion of justification entails to begin with. The leading synoptic work on justification, that's Alastair McGrath's Justitia Dei, um, begins by acknowledging the difficulty of defining the term. But eventually, it comes to a set of three propositions that, according to him, explain the Christian understanding of the relationship between God and humanity. I myself am partial to McGrath's statement uh, because it seems to me to fit, to show what ground is actually shared even by those who disagree and disagree pretty radically about what justification is. The three propositions are as follows. Uh, number one, man is sinful. Number two, God is righteous. And number three, God justifies humanity, right? Those three propositions give a good sense of what's at stake in conversations about justification. Uh, but I think you will all agree with me that put that way, 
the account is frustratingly vague, right? Tells us next to nothing about the actual process and puts very little meat on that skeleton, as it were, right? Um, it does, though, give us the three basic ideas that I would say are almost universally agreed upon in the Christian tradition, right? Um, which are human sinfulness, God's righteousness, and God somehow or other justifying, making right, doing something for human beings so that they are capable of being accepted to salvation. Let me tease out uh, each of these three notions in turn. Uh, they're all drawn from scripture one way or another, right? Um, though there are important disputes about how the Bible in certain respects should be read, and we'll talk about at least one of those, the back of your handout is about one concrete dispute that I really want to focus on. Um, uh, but let me say one thing clearly, since I'm not sure it goes without saying. Um, the scriptural texts that are relevant in this debate are mostly Paul's epistles, right? Um, Paul himself finds a basis in the Old Testament and some basis in the Gospels for defending his position on justification, uh, but nobody really disagrees that it's above all in the epistles that you find this kind of change, that you find this teaching. Uh, incidentally, right, this isn't part of my talk, but one thing I happen personally to have been working on is John Locke's commentary on Paul's epistles. I don't know if you guys knew Locke had a commentary on that. And he does everything he can, I would say, to gut it of most of its theological weight, right? He, in effect, tries to take out delete notions as fundamental as original sin, I think, because he believes it's more compatible with his politics, political liberalism. If you guys are curious about that, I'm happy to talk about it afterwards. But let's, let's focus on, let's stay focused and get back to the basics, right? Um, so I'm going to take up each of these three propositions in turn. Uh, the first proposition, again, is that man is sinful, right? That's the necessary presupposition if one is to say that human beings need justification to begin with. The notion is the one that we now refer to as original sin, right? And for everyone that we will consider today, for Thomas, for Luther, and for Calvin, original sin has its origin in Adam's actions. All three of them, incidentally, are believers in the historical Adam exactly as the Genesis story tells the story, right? I mean, now Catholic doctrine is somewhat different on this as I understand it, but from that time, uh, at that time, it was, it was much more direct. Um, original sin is treated under two aspects. Right? Um, the first refers to the human proclivity or inclination to sin, right? Um, due to Adam's original transgression, the original justice with which man was created is undermined. Original justice is the original condition of human beings, and it involved an inclination, evening, uh, an inclination always to choose what was good. There were no bad desires in the original condition in Eden, according to Aquinas and Augustine and Calvin and Luther and myriad others, right? Um, with original sin comes about a certain set of disordered desires that do not direct human beings toward God and the good, okay? So human beings through original sin become inclined to choose things other than the good and not to do what God would have of them. 
The second component, and Calvin is the one, by the way, who really, among these three, divides clearly between these two aspects. Um, The second component is what we might call original corruption or original guilt. The point of that is that human beings are born guilty. That is, they are all born with a stain of sin upon them even prior to any act that they commit. That's the justification for infant justification in the ordinary sense. That's the rationale, let me say, um, behind infant baptism, for instance, right? You need to baptize infants in order to purge them of that original sin. Um, uh, So in addition to having this ill inclination, human beings are also born with a kind of stain that at some point needs to be removed, right? Um, Okay, Uh, the most salient passage in the Bible that supports this interpretation uh, or that supports this suggestion, I believe, is found in Paul's letter to the Romans, right? Um, There are echoes of it in the Gospels. I'm not going to read these, but I'll refer you to John chapter 3 at the beginning uh, for, for, for something that expresses a similar thought. Um, But the clearest statement is in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, which I will read out now. Therefore, Paul writes, just as though one person, through one person, sin entered the world and through sin, death. And thus death came to all inasmuch as all sinned, right? The scriptural, that's the Catholic uh, uh, translation, The suggestion is that somehow or other, all human beings sinned through Adam, and they are born with a kind of original guilt. Thesis one, proposition one, I should say. Um, Proposition two, God's righteousness, or justice, I should say. I didn't point this out yet, Uh, but righteousness, justification, justice, in Greek, those all come from the same root. They're cognate words, right? This is the one about which I have the least to say. There are some interesting disputes about this, uh, but at heart, it's the proposition that God himself should be understood as just, right? That God himself is a just being, um, and there must be some kind of justice in the way that he meets out salvation and damnation, if that's what happens, right? Um, uh, There's a lot to say about this. Uh, I would just note that This question of God's justice or theodicy is one of the great ones, not only in the Christian tradition, but in the Jewish tradition and any religious tradition that you could encounter. Um, And it's worth just, it would be a different lecture, right? Um, But it's worth considering to what extent and how, not to what extent, but in what way God can be considered just. And Luther and Calvin struggle with that sometimes. And I, that's, I'm not going to come back to that, but I, I, I can talk about that in the questions. Third proposition, proposition that's central for us, God justifies humanity. God justifies human beings. What does that mean? Well, it means that some kind of transformation takes place, which makes it possible for human beings who are born in an original sinful state to be accepted Uh, as worthy of salvation, right? Worthy of is a tricky phrase, but it it allows them to be accepted for salvation. The mechanism through which that happens, the one thing necessary if human beings are 
to be able to undergo such a transformation is the coming of Jesus Christ, right? So the stakes in this issue um, could hardly be higher, right? The question is the relationship, the whole question is the relationship between God and human beings and how the coming of Christ decisively changed that relationship, right? Um, so those are the three basic propositions, right? Those are the, 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 the basic rubric under which I want to think about justification tonight. Um, to that, right, there's one other concept that I think I need to add. This is not going to be an unfamiliar concept, uh, but it's, it's important to state it specifically, and that's the concept of grace, right? Uh, God's free gift to human beings, right? Um, all of our thinkers today will say in one voice that justification comes about through grace, right? Um, what that means is that justification is God's free gift to human beings, not something done because human beings deserve it, not because they merit it, right? But because God freely chooses to save them, right? Out of the goodness of his essence, right? Goodness of his heart, he chooses human beings and decides to grant them this grace, which makes them capable of salvation, right? In the early church, in the early centuries of the church, there was, in fact, some dispute over this, right? Uh, in the fourth and fifth century, when St. Augustine was writing, a famous heresy cropped up in the Christian world. The heresy that's now called Pelagianism, associated with the theologian Pelagius. Um, Pelagius held that man could, by the natural power of free will, and without the necessary help of God's grace, lead a morally good life. Thus, he reduced the influence of Adam's fault to a bad example. Right? That's a quote from the Catechism, by the way. Um, uh, but Pelagius, per Pelagius, right, human beings didn't need a special intervention of grace to attain salvation. They could attain it through choices made by their own free will. That was the heresy that received the most severe criticisms and condemnations in the early years, of, I would say, in the first few centuries of the church. Um, the greatest opponents of that heresy are... St. Augustine and St. Jerome, two of the original four doctors of the church. Um, Augustine's response is the most, one of the most famous things in his writings. Colton, I know that you've read this somewhat extensively. Uh, I hope you don't mind me picking on you. Does he, does he just tell you about this stuff all the time? Is it? Yes. <laughs> he, it's funny. Huh? <laughs> uh, no, it's great, Colton. It makes you, it makes you, uh, People should be thinking about this stuff. You guys should all thank Colton after this talk for, for, uh, uh, for, for keeping this fundamental question on your mind because it's the most important question in the world. Um, so Augustine's response was that the Pelagians uh, failed to convey, Pelagius and the Pelagians failed to convey the important role of grace, right? Didn't appreciate that God's specific intervention on behalf of a Christian was what made it possible for him or her to be justified and so accepted for salvation. In other words, right, Pelagianism reflects a certain sin of pride, 
the characteristic sin, the, the kind of quintessential sin for Augustine and the beginning of all sin for Thomas Aquinas, right? Um, trying to make oneself responsible for one's salvation or give oneself credit for one's salvation rather than giving glory to God alone is the most fundamental mistake one can make. Um, and most of the rest of church history will regard that Pelagianism as the characteristic sin. There's even a suggestion out there now uh, that some kick around that modernity is a kind of Pelagianism, right? An attempt bias is associated with a, uh, a political theorist named Eric Nelson, right, who argues that uh, uh, modernity is an attempt by um, human beings to make themselves happy rather than seeing in God the true source of their happiness. Um, so, so much for this opening account of the problem of justification. Uh, I've tried to lay out the basic ideas, uh, but I've also tried to be rather sketchy or skeletal in what I've said, right? Um, there's a lot of room for dispute within this rubric about how precisely all of this occurs. What precisely is the role of human beings in attaining justification? Does our sinfulness leave any space at all for a human contribution? Does grace simply overwhelm it? Is it entirely and irreducibly a matter of God's favor? That is a free election to which human beings can contribute nothing, right? The reformers, Luther and Calvin, uh, and the Reformation itself, right, will offer certain answers to those questions, right? Um, specifically, Luther and Calvin will claim that the answers that preceded them went too far in the direction of Pelagianism, were in effect Pelagianism, chalked too much up to human merit instead of placing the glory where it belongs, in God's hands, right? Um, we'll trace out that argument now, right? So now I'm moving again. If you guys, I don't know if you guys are following the outline. I don't care if you are, but uh, uh, we're, we're moving on to part two now. Okay. So you guys all, I suppose, know the story of the great break that occurs in the church in the early 16th century when Martin Luther posted his famous theses at the uh, University of Wittenberg and laid down his objections to scholastic theology. Um, uh, as I was saying before, right, the famous part of this is probably, I don't actually know what's famous usually, but the, uh, my sense is the most famous part of this is Luther's attack on indulgences and the sale of indulgences. The real weighty truth of this is a criticism of uh, scholastic theology, right? A claim that scholastic theology was in effect, or at least had become, Pelagian. Now, the formulation with which most of you are probably familiar is that Luther defended the idea of justification by faith rather than by works, right? In other words, he claimed that works could contribute nothing, no work a human being could do, could contribute anything to his or her salvation, that salvation lay ultimately and only in God's hands. Um, that formulation, justification by faith alone, is drawn also, as we were talking about before with original sin, from St. Paul, right? 
the most famous crucial passage on this comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. You turn over your thing. I've, post, I've put this one in the, uh, on the handout, um, uh, and I will just read a little bit of that now. Right? Um, I'm just going to read that quote. Uh, so he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith and Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. And here's the kicker. Uh, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's an exaggeration, but it's only an exaggeration and not an outright falsehood to say that the Reformation was fought over how to read this passage in the Bible. When Paul refers to works of human beings here, Luther and Calvin take them to mean that all works, no work of any sort can contribute anything to salvation, not even those that occur after human beings have been given grace. The only thing that counts is faith. Um, Okay, that's fine and good, uh, but that thought needs further exposition. And I want to make an effort to explain where this thought comes from, right? First, by following the rubric I laid out before and talking about how this notion of justification by faith rather than works fits in to that scheme that uh, McGrath laid out, right? The three prongs, right? So what do these three things, what do these three things mean? And especially I want to talk about the first and the third, right? Original sin and uh, justification. So beginning from the fact of original sin, for Luther and Calvin both, the idea of original sin uh, does reflect a historical reality, right? Sin was committed by Adam. Its consequences are detectable in us, both in our inborn corruption and and in the inclination that we all have to sinfulness. They go rather further than some of their predecessors, right? Because they will assert the doctrine that's famously called total depravity in the Calvin Tulip teaching, right? Which is that the consequence of original sin is not only that human beings have an inclination to sin, but that there is within them no capacity at all to do anything that is right under any circumstances. In other words, Nature itself is in no way, can in no way, be a principle of a virtuous work. I'll quote a line from Calvin. This is from his Institutes, uh, uh, Part 3, Chapter 9, right? Um, This is one of the most forceful statements of Calvin, of which I am aware. It's not on your quote list. Uh, I'll tell you guys when it's on the quote list. Don't worry. Um, 
uh, even saints, he says, cannot perform one work which, if judged on its own merits, is not deserving of condemnation, right? Even saints, he says, can't do a single work that's not worthy of con- not only just, you know, not, not only that's not perfectly meritorious, but that's not worthy of uh, condemnation. You can see the same thought, though Luther is, in my opinion, not as articulate as Calvin. You can see the same thought in many of Luther's writings when he picks apart the secret motives of people who in the ancient past may have been regarded as virtuous. Uh, At the beginning of his commentary on the Romans, he holds up Socrates as a model human being, but says if you could look inside, you would see that even in his heart, he was driven ultimately and decisively by pride, right? Um, Now, for Luther and Calvin, right, one consequence of this fact that human beings are so sinful is the denial of free will, right? Um, So when Luther engages Erasmus of Rotterdam, right, if you guys don't know this, the famous exchange between Luther and Erasmus over the enslaved will, it's the thing I've mentioned in your handout, right? Um, uh, that, That colloquy between Luther and Erasmus is one of the statements by Luther that's most important for understanding just the Reformation's theology of of justification and free will, he emphatically denies free will. But he denies it not so much on the grounds that, you know, there are material causes of our choices or that human beings are drawn irresistibly to the good, but on the grounds that human beings are necessarily sinful, right? The captivity of the will is not, you know, it's not... uh, you know, lack of freedom in the sense that an ancient atomist might have described it. It's instead a fact that's knowable, a fact that's the consequence of original sin, right? Um, So this would appear, right, to leave human beings without any capacity to achieve justice on their own. Um, And indeed, that's true for Luther and Calvin, right? The only possible way that we can be justified is through God's grace or God's free choice. So how does that work for Luther and Calvin, right? Um, The description uh, uh, that Luther gives it uh, uh, in, uh, this is is in his preface to Paul's letter to the Romans is as follows, right? Faith is something that God effects in us, right? So in other words, Luther rejects the idea that any work a human being could do could merit salvation, could make them capable of faith, that it's simply the free gift of God, right? Um, Justification doesn't make faith, I should say, doesn't in a proper sense make human beings deserving of God's mercy. There's no meaningful sense for a Luther or a Calvin in which human beings can do something that's meritorious in God's eyes through an act of their own will, right? We are justified and we are saved only through God's generosity and grace. Quoting Luther again, he writes, this is in the enslaved will. St. Paul holds that there is no merit whatever, but that whoever is justified is justified gratis, by grace, freely, right? Um, and that this is not imputed to any one, but rather to the grace of God. No act, no work, 
No quality of a human being can in any way serve to propitiate God or make a human being worthy of salvation. Justification comes sola gratia, only by grace and only by grace freely given, right? So what is, okay, so that much I, I hope is clear enough, right? Faith comes only through grace. What is faith though, right? And why does Luther not want to say that faith itself is something meritorious, something that Thomas Aquinas will say, just to preview something from a little later on. Um, here I quote again from Luther, same preface to the Romans, right? Um, faith is a living and unshakable confidence, a belief in the grace of God so assured that a man would die a thousand deaths for its sake. Unshakable confidence, right? That means that faith is not an act that we commit, right? It's rather something that's concomitant on God's active grace. Concomitant means it follows along automatically because of what God does. It's not something that human beings choose, right? Um, indeed, right, when we interrogate this idea a little bit further, we find that Faith, the faith given by God's grace, does not even serve to make human beings righteous, not in the proper sense, right? Um, for Luther and Calvin too, justification is a process by which Jesus's righteousness is imputed to us or is allowed to count for us in lieu of our own righteousness, right? The technical term for that is forensic justification. The notion is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross should be sufficient. That human righteousness doesn't need to contribute to anything to that, and in fact, does not contribute anything to that, right? Um, I'll quote Calvin now, just for the sake of clarity. Calvin's the one whom I find uh, uh, so clear, right? Um, this is uh, from the Institutes now. He writes, a man will be justified by faith when excluded from the righteousness of works. He by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ and clothed in it, that's the crucial phrase, clothed in it, um, appears not as a sinner, but as righteous. Thus, we simply interpret justification as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as if we were righteous. And we say that justification consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, justification does not by itself involve a transformation of a sinful human being into a righteous one. It rather involves the imputation of Christ's righteousness to sinful human beings. We, in fact, remain sinners, right? Uh, but find our sins covered over with Christ's righteousness. We are judged by Christ rather than we're judged by what Christ did on the cross rather than by ourselves, right, and who we are. Um, so a true Christian uh, Luther's famous uh, phrase for this, right? Um, or this is actually not in Luther, but the famous characterization of this in accounting for Luther is a uh, simul justus et peccator, right? Um, which means I am at the same time just and a sinner, 
right? But what he means by that is he's just because when God looks at him, he doesn't look at him as himself. He looks at Christ's sacrifice on the cross and lets that stand in for his own failings. He's a sinner because he's a sinner, right? Um, because in fact, the truth is that uh, uh, he remains a sinner. Now, this doesn't mean that for Luther and Calvin, human beings, and this is one I, I want to ward off this criticism, right, because I think it's important. Um, this doesn't mean that human beings will wallow through the rest of their life in sin, happily expecting to reap the rewards of uh, Christ's sacrifice in the afterlife. Um, of course, that's not what they think. Luther will note that the gift of grace carries with it a certain transformation of the heart, um, so that whereas before, uh, no choice of good was even possible, now at least sometimes it's possible, right, and, and in a way. Calvin, meanwhile, has uh, an account of it that I would say is not fundamentally different, but that's more conceptually rigorous and complete than anything I've seen in Luther. He distinguishes clearly between justification, that's the act by which God justifies us, makes us worthy of salvation by considering Christ instead of us, uh, and regeneration or rebirth, right? That's uh, regeneration is Latin, cognate with rebirth, right? And the idea is that we somehow become a new human being, right? Um, for Calvin, the end of regeneration, this is a quote now, the end of regeneration is to form us anew in the image of God, right? Human beings, when they are given grace, can become reborn and live a new life consumed with righteousness. Not consumed with, they can live a new life uh, full, uh, um, righteously. They can come to live uh, uh, right and righteously. Okay, uh, so those are the basics of the Calvinist-Lutheran understanding. As I've said, I've tried to underline especially points of agreement between the two. There are subtle differences. We can talk about that a little bit later if you want. But the truth is that what I'm more interested in is the difference between Calvin and Luther and their predecessors, these scholastics, right? Uh, and as I warned you, right, I think that the scholastics, Thomas especially, right, uh, that really Thomas has more in common with Luther and Calvin than one might at first blush think. Um, so, I'm told that's my provocative thesis for the night, and let me let me just try to defend it. So now we're in part three. Uh, <laughs> is it part three? This is part three, right? Yeah, I think it's part three. It's fine. I don't, like I said, I don't really care if you guys follow along. Um, so Thomas Aquinas. This is a Thomistic Institute event. It's somehow appropriate that he has pride of place in our theological studies. Thomas, I will own, is my favorite theologian. Uh, I'm probably not like a total Thomist, but I'm like two-thirds of a Thomist, and I'm a great lover of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is also the first great book I ever read. I, I, my grandmother gave it to me when I was much too young to see it. Anyway, that's, that's, not, that's not in my text. That's not part of the lecture. Um, uh, okay, so Thomas states his position on justification most clearly and completely in the treatise on grace. That's at the end of the Secunda Prima, uh, the prima secunda, rather, of the Summa. Um, he has some earlier statements on this, including in his commentary on Lombard's sentences. Uh, and there are some suggestions that I find plausible that he changed his position over the course of his life. For our purposes, and, what I'm, and, and with respect to what I'm going to say, 
I'm only going to treat what I consider to be his final polished position, the position that he took in the Summa. Um, now, Thomas's treatise on grace in the Summa uh, is found after his discussion of law. There he describes the various types of law, but the law by itself isn't sufficient for human beings to um, win salvation because in addition to knowing what the law is, they need grace if they're going to follow it, right? Um, Thomas gives in that treatise of law a lot of weight to the concept of nature, right? Again, kind of Thomas 101 is that there's a close, there's, there's an interesting relationship between nature and grace. And as he famously says in the first part of the Summa, in uh, 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 Prima Pars, question one, article eight, he famously asserts that nature does not, that grace rather, does not destroy but completes nature. In that sense, right, Thomas is going to give more weight to natural goodness, as it were, than Calvin or Luther does. Now, that's going to be qualified in ways that I would say mean that, as I'm going to try to say, he comes down ultimately closer to the Luther-Calvin position than he does to one of the Pelagians, but it does seem to me that he gives more space to nature um, than Luther and Calvin do. Uh, but that said, right, he shares the conviction of Luther and Calvin that human beings cannot justify themselves through actions that have their beginnings in themselves, right? To put that somewhat differently, the goodness of human nature, though a real and important thing, is not sufficient to achieve salvation, right? Indeed, Thomas's first argument for what he calls the necessity of grace, right? The claim that the world is so constituted that there needed to be some kind of grace is the claim that it was necessary to justify ungodly men. That means human beings afflicted with original sin. They cannot merit salvation by anything that they do themselves. In that sense, Thomas speaks with one voice with the reformers against Pelagianism. Now, Thomas's discussion of grace is going to be more technical than Luther's or Calvin's. Uh, he's got an entire question devoted to the division of grace. Uh, Luther's constant refrain in his colloquy with Erasmus is that all of Erasmus's attempts to divide, to chop grace up into these different uh, components is just so much uh, attempting to smuggle Pelagianism in while hiding that that's what he's really doing, right? Um, I'm not quite of that position, right? Um, but it is important to note that for Thomas at least, right, um, uh, human action by its, right again, so just, just, just to repeat, human action by itself is not capable of securing for us salvation. Uh, as evidence that this is Thomas' position, Thomas's position, I'd like to introduce two passages from the Summa. I'm going to read these both out. These are not on your handout, unfortunately. Um, there's only so much I can put on a handout. I had, I had one. I, I guess I could have made a three-page handout. But anyway, these are. Um, if you want to go home and look them up, uh, these are both taken from the Prima Secundi 109. Uh, one is from Article Six, and the other is from Article Seven. Right. Here's how Thomas explains human preparation for grace. He says, now in order that man prepare himself to receive this gift, that is grace, the gift of grace, 
it is not necessary to presuppose any further habitual gift in the soul, otherwise we should go on to infinity. But we must presuppose a gratuitous gift of God who moves the soul inwardly or inspires the good wish. Thus, since God is the first mover simply, it is by his motion that everything seeks to be likened to God in its own way. Hence, Dionysius says that God turns all to himself, but he directs righteous men to himself as to a special end, which they seek and to which they cling, according to the psalm, I will skip the psalm, um, and that they are turned to God can only spring from God's having turned them. Now, to prepare oneself for grace is, as it were, to be turned to God, just as whoever has his eyes turned away from the light of the sun prepares himself to receive the sun's light by turning his eyes toward the sun. Hence, it is clear that man cannot prepare himself to receive the light of grace except by the gratuitous help of God moving him inwardly. What is the key assertion here? The basic, hello, John. Um, uh, the basic assertion here is that human beings cannot prepare themselves to receive grace by any action that they take through their own power, right? God needs to move them first so that they're in a condition that they're capable of receiving it. The second remark, which comes from the next question, this is question one, uh, article seven, rather, of the same question, um, is more concise, I would say, and reflects, uh, this is something that you practically could read in Calvin's writings, right? Um, so this is 109, Article 7. The apostle says, for if there had been a law given which could give life, then Christ died in vain. That is to no purpose. Hence, with equal reason, if man has a nature whereby he can be justified, Christ died in vain. That is to no purpose. Most important argument he makes, right? If human nature by itself were sufficient to achieve grace, right? If it were enough to achieve salvation, Christ's sacrifice on the cross would not even have been necessary, okay? Um, and it's because that's an unacceptable conclusion that Thomas will say, no, right? Human beings must have their own role in, uh, must have a, a subordinate role at best in achieving this grace. So in these senses, it seems to me, Thomas broadly agrees with, both, with what both Luther and Calvin would say, right? In both of these cases, he puts the emphasis on God as the first mover of human beings towards salvation. That said, there are some important differences, and I'd like to underline three for our purposes, right? Um, first, right, Thomas denies the doctrine of total depravity. In other words, he argues that human beings have some capacity to do work, to do good works by nature, even if that's not yet sufficient to merit salvation. So original sin for him is not total depravity, but it is a very great deal of depravity, to put it somewhat coarsely, right? Um, human beings are all... Uh, uh, they're incapable of curing themselves of their first of their 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 fundamental corruption, um, but they are capable of doing some good things, uh, and you can see from the way that Thomas speaks about this that he's got a, a somewhat sunnier view than Calvin and Luther. I'll read again. This is uh, Summa um, Question One Hundred Nine, Article Two. He writes: 
Yet because human nature is not altogether corrupted by sin, so as to be shorn of every natural good, even in the state of corrupted nature, it can, by virtue of its natural endowments, work some particular good as to build dwellings, plant vineyards, and the like. Yet it cannot do all the good natural to it, so as to fall short in nothing. Just as a sick man can of himself make some movements, yet he cannot be perfectly moved with the movements of one in health, unless by the help of medicine he be cured, right? So difference number one, just to put it simply, the corruption of nature is not total corruption. Human beings are capable of some good works. This again is a fascinating issue for like more extensive study. Are there pagan non-Christian virtues that are possible? And Thomas says at least somewhat, right? Like his language here is a little dismissive, I think. He says, well, they can make vineyards and stuff like that. But they can also have real political virtues, right? They can be, they can be great statesmen. They can have families. They can fulfill the precepts of the natural law, at least to a very great extent. Second point. Thomas, unlike the reformers, does not deny free will, right? For him, free will uh, is necessary, and even its cooperation with grace. I'll read again from the Summa. This is page, uh, this is rather um, uh, uh, question 113, article 4. He writes, but it is man's proper nature to have free will. Hence, in him who has the use of reason, God's motion to justice does not take place without a movement of the free will. But he so infuses the gift of justifying grace that at the same time he moves the free will to accept the gift of grace in such as are capable of being moved thus, right? So for Thomas, free will is so much a part of who we are that God could not save us without saving our will also. And he turns the will toward him. Thomas actually is a very elaborate account of all the different motions that take place in the will. Uh, as, a, as a kind of consequence of God's grace. Um, but it's important for him, nevertheless, that the move of our will comes from God, right? It's not something we do independently. It's not something that's chosen as if from nowhere. It's something that God gives to us, right? And without God's grace, that movement toward him would be impossible. Third big consequence of all this, third big difference, I should say, um, Works can, for Thomas, be required and even necessary for salvation, right? Um, and they can be meritorious when done with the grace of the Holy Spirit. Here I want to read out the last quote that I put on your handout, right? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read a few sections. From it. Uh, so just reading uh, uh, from the, the, uh, the, first the first paragraph of that at the end, um, uh, he writes, uh, for even in the old law, faith was necessary, just as, it, just as it is in the new. You who fear the Lord, uh, believe him. I believed, therefore I have spoken. And indeed, works are required in the new law, namely the works of certain sacraments as commanded in Luke. Do this in memory of me and of moral observances to doers of the word and not bearers only, right? And he quotes there James, the epistle of James, which is one of the most disputed epistles in the Reformation. Uh, Luther regards James as not even authentic 
Uh, Calvin says James meant something completely different from what it looks like he means. Thomas says, no, works do have some kind of salvific effect. Works, you know, grace without, uh, rather faith without works is empty and insufficient, right? And those works done with the Holy Spirit, especially the sacraments, can even be necessary for salvation, right? Okay, so that's what I have on Thomas, right? Now, now, now my little closing, right? Um, so what I've tried to argue is that Thomas's teaching on justification in many ways resembles the teaching of the reformers. To wit, he too regards the movement as God's grace for ne as necessary for any possibility of relief from original sin, and he too sees human beings as being given a gift while not making themselves worthy of salvation. His teaching does nevertheless differ from the reformers in the three important ways that I mentioned. So how does one decide between these two alternatives, right? Um, and I did promise that I would at least close with something like an attempt to defend Thomas. Uh, take this as provisional, but these are my thoughts. Um, I have two, 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 two things I'd like to say. Um, I hope these are defenses of Thomas and not just reasons that I find him more friendly in some ways than the reformers at the end, end of the day, but I'll, I'll tell, you, tell them to you anyway. The first I would say is Thomas's uh, robust defense of humans' natural capacities, right? Uh, the reformers for him could not be said to convey adequately what's good in human nature. Human beings have real, even if limited and defective, virtues. That's something that's very difficult, I think, to deny, right? Uh, confidence in the incomplete but genuine goodness of nature is, in a way, the premise of Thomas's uh, defense of our natural capacities, um, and it's, it's, it's of a piece with his whole account of the natural law, right? That something is written in the human heart that tells us what a virtue is, and at least sometimes, if not always, we can fulfill that, right? So my first reason um, uh, for preferring as it were, Thomas's teaching to the reformers is that it seems to me that he, or to put it differently, this just occurs to me now, this isn't in my notes, um, uh, uh, that Luther and Calvin's attempts to find ugly motives at the bottom of every human action seem to me untrue to the phenomenon. Um, second thing, uh, Thomas's defense of free will. Um, the problem here uh, is, is that... Uh, in erasing free will completely, right? Luther and Calvin somehow are forced to erase a part of their nature without which Thomas at least says that the whole law and all the teachings of God would be in vain, right? Um, preserving that, right, seems to me that something that Catholics at least can, can, can get behind, right? Um, I know that those are not sufficient by themselves. Those are just the, the paths down which I would, I would, I would go to start thinking about this. Um, but as a final closing and just a final reflection, um, uh, I guess what I wanted to convey above all by putting the talk this way and framing it as I did is what should be so compelling even to Catholic Thomists about reading Luther and Calvin, right? Um, and again, it's not the complaint about indulgences or political corruption in the church, which plenty of people, plenty of 
good, faithful Catholics who had no theological split with the church were making at the same time. Um, it's instead the basic claim that one can't contribute anything to one's salvation because one doesn't need to, right? And that to, to, to stop short of that, right? To believe that human works can contribute something to salvation is in a way to undermine, I mean, this again, I'm just saying in effect, what I think is the most powerful argument the reformers make that you undermine or understate Christ's glory by trying to take credit or even have a share in something that can only come about through God's grace. Um, now, in that respect, it seems to me that Thomas is, in fact, very close to them, right? And I would just finally say that, um, uh, you know, for all of the objections, and they're very reasonable objections, as I've been saying to Luther and Calvin, uh, one can't help but see that their deepest concerns, even in the nastiest polemics they have against Catholics and the papacy, uh, are all rooted in a love and admiration of Christ, right? Um, and that's a concern in which I think all Christians should share. So thank you. Uh, I'm happy to hang out and take questions. So, um, I don't know, it was about an hour. So, uh, yeah. Anyone has anything to ask? Uh, please. Yes. And say, could you guys say your names as you, as you ask questions? Yeah. I'm Vincent Herzog. Um, and I guess um, I was thinking about pressing on and your project of pressing on and making um, Samus and the reformers bringing them closer in our view. Uh, so on that, that difference that you highlight on the position of free will. Yeah. Um, okay, sure, so Thomas isn't going to agree with them that every human action, um, at least is not uh, done uh, with grace, is, is to be condemned, it's not to agree that. But might he agree with the more general description that seems to be in the general description so, so you, you pointed out uh, in, in different words that, that the reformers weren't holding a position of determinism, right? Mm -hmm. um, but rather not free to choose the good, right? Yes. Uh, and in this case, not free to choose. He would agree that, that apart from grace, we're not free to choose what is supernaturally. What is the supernatural? Yeah. Thing, right? We're not. Yes. We're not Free, he would agree with them that we, apart from grace, were not free to uh, to choose what is meritorious. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't formulate it that way, but I agree. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. I just think we could we could bring him even closer uh, there. Um, and I've found in my conversations um, with Lutherans that that's uh, like a local brewery, whatever. That that's good to, to be on on board with. You know, they appreciate not having a a caricature of their view, and it's, you know, so yeah. that's, that's been very fruitful to be on common ground with, with them. So, uh, uh, do you want to say more, or can I respond a little? No, please, yeah, I thought you were responding. I thought you, I thought you said, yeah, thumbs up as you no, I basically agree. The one, the one little wrinkle I want to introduce, and this is something that I cut from the talk originally yeah. because I don't know, there's only so much you can say. Um, Thomas has a notion, so I had one tiny little quibble, um, which is Thomas speaks about condign and congruous merit, right? 
And condign merit is the merit by which one would genuinely be worthy of salvation, right? And he says that's something human beings are not capable of having by their own power, right? The Holy Spirit can do that, but they can't do that. Congruous merit, it's a somewhat wispier or thornier notion, right? Um, it means that human beings do something good and that it, it, it merits something, right? Thomas even uses these somewhat complicated suggestions uh, uh, like the language that he'll use. I'm drawing here from uh, uh, 114 of the Prima Secundi when I say this, right? But he has formulations like it was fitting somehow that one person, you know, did, you know, one person could help another come to earn salvation through what they did, right? Um, and it's very clear in his case that it's not that God owes it to us. It's not that we earned it, Right. But there's nevertheless some space for something that he says is, he even will use the term meritorious for it, right? And again, absolutely like you were saying, it's meritorious in a much more limited way than, you know, what Pelagius would speak about, right? Curing yourself of sin and so becoming worthy of salvation. But it is something, right? So that's, I mean, it's a very tiny quibble, but, but that's it. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I am curious as a follow-up how the reformers would handle or did handle, I'm sure, I'm sure there's talk of it, but I don't, I don't know. How did the reformers handle um, talk from Jesus himself about our merit, right? Like that someone would not lose the reward if they gave a Christian, uh, you know, um, a cup of water, right? Or yeah. that, um, that we would merit treasure in heaven. I mean, the talk of merit comes right from Christ. How did they handle that? You know, I don't, I haven't read their commentaries on this, and I, I they, they don't cite those passages in their, their basic treatments of merit. Right. They have commentaries on those gospels, so I'm sure they say something right. about it, yeah. but I, I just don't know is the truth. Uh, um, usually they'll say things like, you know, uh, it's used metaphorically, or it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's in this, this context, their merit refers, my guess is, so I, I, I can't confirm this, but my guess is they say something like, well, their reward is the reward that Jesus won for them or something right, like right. that, right? Uh, but the truth is, I just haven't looked at their commentaries on those passages, and I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, other questions? Yes. How did these concepts... Tell me your name, too. Oh, I'm Tom. Hi, Tom. <laughs> you could, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, um, yeah I'm just going to admit it. Um, how, how did these concepts become separate? I mean, it seems in the gospel they just... They naturally flow from one another. Faith and, and works. I mean, how did faith and works become separated? That's, sorry, I didn't say the right words. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. Um, it, so, it just, Jesus just always says, hey, if you have faith in me, you'll do this. If you have faith in me, you'll do that. And Thomas, so look, Calvin and Luther do agree that you're going to at least. You will often do good works if you have faith in him. And they, you know, they, they, they usually have things to say about lines like, you know, without. Uh, you know, the, 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 the lines in scripture that suggest that the faithful person will do good works, they agree with, right? But the important thing for them is that that work is the consequence of grace and faith. It's not something that by itself is meritorious, right? So another, another a better way to put this is neither one of them is against good works. They just don't think that good works contribute to salvation and they think it's sinful to make the mistake of believing that good works contribute to salvation. 
The way they got separated is in part people try to do that, right? Like so Pelagius, you know, makes a suggestion that you can at least cure yourself through things that are in your own nature. Um, some of it does have to do with the politics of the Reformation era, right? Sale of indulgences is a good work that's supposed to spring you out of purgatory, right? Or, or at least reduce your punishment in purgatory. So it, it seems like God could be paid off, as it were, right? And in a way, this is ratcheting up that whole thought. Yeah. The thing I've never understood about that is if you're in purgatory, you're guaranteed in heaven, right? Isn't yeah. that the theology? So maybe you suffer a little less, but you're still going. Yeah, Calvin, Calvin, Calvin denies, uh, Calvin and Luther denied purgatory. Calvin at least denies purgatory. I'm pretty sure Luther denies purgatory, but don't, don't quote me on, take that out of the recording. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but, um, uh, but, but Calvin denies purgatory specifically. Um, I don't know, it's still like, isn't it still kind of paying God off if you think that instead of the, you know, if, isn't there something weird about saying you can get rid of 50 years of suffering by, you know, your your, your nephew making a contribution to... I'd almost agree that the money was going to the Vatican, the Vatican so... <laughs> <laughs> it's very beautiful. I mean, you know, it's... it's whenever you go to St. Peter's, I don't know if you guys get to go to Rome. We were just talking about architecture earlier. Right? Very beautiful. Um, uh, and you always think... You know, these are not, this was not, I mean, it's the most, it's, it's maybe the most, I don't know if it's the most beautiful building in the world. It's way the heck up there, right? Um, but, uh, like, you know, it wasn't built in the most ethical way, exactly. Um, uh, anyway. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? I have a question. Please. So, <laughs> could you formulate the Reformation view of grace and free will as grace is something that overpowers the will or like there may be cooperation there, but the cooperation, because it's God's work, it's not like there's no merit, like there's no merit, which is God crowning his own gifts or anything. There's nothing like that. Whereas the Thomas view, it's like there is a grace which acts on you which then leads to a cooperative grace, which is more like synergistic, whereas like in the former it's... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, even the, you know, the notion, well, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, I would say, right? That there, there, there's a kind of cooperation on the part of human beings in, in, in that grace. And I mean, it's... Okay, so one thing I just find very difficult to give an account of in Thomas, actually, is where exactly the freedom of free will comes in, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I guess I would say this. He does suggest that our free will is capable of being transformed by grace because of what God does to it, as it were, right? So it's not, it's not just like a, it's, it's, it's free, you know, it's, it's, it's clear to me that Thomas thinks that the will is a part of who we are and that that needs to be transformed by grace that's clear, right? But saying exactly what the free part of free will is is, is harder for me. Does that make sense? Okay. This is just an issue I find somewhat opaque in Thomas at this point. This is I've been studying it. I just feel like I haven't gotten to the bottom of it. Yeah. Hi, uh, Dr. So along that, uh, Nicholas Ma. Um, Hi, Nicholas. Uh, along those lines, where where you're saying like, where is the free 
existed a free will. Is it the sort of relationship between our act and potency that Chris Hobbes supplied this where like the free will would play? I, I think in effect Thomas would agree with Luther and Calvin that we can't mirror our salvation as outside of grace. Yeah. Right? And that you know anything we do that is I guess mirrored for our salvation comes from grace and um, anything apart from grace, I think like the corruption of original sin would practice what's it. Yes. So could it be that if we have abstract of this, so even though we don't can't do anything without grace itself, or even if we won't be doing anything meritorious without grace, we still have the potency to do so even though we won't actually and vice versa, when we are justified efficaciously by grace, um, we have the potency to reject it, even though God infallibly moves us towards performing that word for us. I don't know if that's a convoluted explanation, but. Yeah, I think so. And I, I guess I would just say about potency. Um, yeah, I mean, we have the potency to do it insofar as it's possible for God to move us, right? But it's not a, like, we can't just, independent of God's movement, choose that we're going to receive grace, right? I mean, that, that, that has to come from him. Do you think that uh, Aquinas' uh, trouble, or your trouble, our trouble, I share this trouble, in finding an account of, of, of free will that you can fully understand in Aquinas, do you think that just ties back to a similar difficulty in finding it in Aristotle? Oh, yeah. I think Aristotle is just kind of, doing the, you know, his typical thing of, uh, well, we know we're free. <laughs> no, we're okay, so, so one thing I can say, so one thing I'm comfortable saying, Thomas, it seems to me, gets a lot closer to freedom than Aristotle does, right? Aristotle's, his, his discussion is very, um, his, his discussion of, of, of how human free choice can come about just kind of stalls out, right? And I think, I mean, I, I, you know, my, my own opinion is that Aristotle probably not only didn't have a notion of free will, but wouldn't have thought it made sense to speak of to speak of such a thing. Yeah. Earlier, I'm Justin, by the way. Earlier, you spoke of the uh, the preparation that God has to do in our hearts to prepare us to receive grace, and I'm wondering why that isn't a grace in itself. It is a grace. Did I say it wasn't? No, but I just. I, know, I, I So it's possible I didn't speak uh, 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 exactly right on this. Absolutely, yes. No, the, 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 the first movement is a grace. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. Follow up question on that. So, yeah. And you alluded to it earlier about the division of grace and faith. Yes. I don't quite recall, but I understand like there's like an actual grace, sufficient grace, efficacious grace. Yeah. Sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace. grace is a whole litany. Yeah. Yes. Without. I guess uh, spending too much time on it, but you kind of like run through the sort of divisions of grace and like what extent, what are. <laughs> Nicholas, I didn't know. I can't do it, Nicholas. No, it's, 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 it's a very reasonable and fair question, but I would need to go. Uh, I need my notes for that one, uh, um, and I, I, I cut it, and I don't, I don't, I just don't have it. Is that fair? Okay, <laughs> it's a very fair question. Um, it's, so, I mean, the one thing I would say is just that it's significant that Thomas's discussion of grace is complicated, right? That there, there are moments in grace, and you know, the first moment, like Justin, you're absolutely right. The first moment comes from grace, right? 
Uh, but there's prevenient. So prevenient grace is the one that precedes the the full reception of grace, and God does change us, right? And it's a very I don't know. I mean, it's 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 technical and involved, and it's a totally fair question, and I just don't have it all in my head right now. Um, uh, but you can read uh, Summa Theologiae, uh, Prima Secundae, question one. It's either 111 or 112, and it's got a very elegant uh, statement of it. <laughs>